0: All right, well here comes part three, I think it is, (laughs) of uh, Mike Winger and his unbiblical stuff the Catholic Church teaches. Uh, Today we're going to at least start by talking about confession. Um, So it's exciting to see where this is going to go. I'm going to go ahead and just hit play and again we'll tackle this uh, piece by piece like we've been doing.
1: Here we go. The second sacrament, the second means of grace is called penance. P-E-N-A-N-C-E, penance. Penance, you might think of this as going to confession. Going to confession, you go to a priest and you explain your...
0: For the record, it actually has multiple names. In fact, a number of the sacraments have multiple names that kind of emphasize different aspects of them. So uh, most people are actually familiar with this sacrament being called the sacrament of confession, um, because of course, it involves confessing your sins. Uh, Also, the sacrament of reconciliation, because it involves being reconciled to God. Um, If you watched my video on sacramental economy, and we talked about how, you know, you can turn away from God and then be righted again towards God through confession of sins and reconciliation. and of course, it's also sometimes called the sacrament of penance. Um, that's actually probably the least common name for it, um, because usually the priest will assign you some form of penance, and penance is something that we undertake in order to um, better be able to show our contriteness for our uh, our sins. I imagine he's going to emphasize that particular term because the word penance itself seems to imply uh, works on our part, and of course, the idea of works is, generally speaking, a um, reprobate, <laughs> abhorrent verboten, whatever you want to call it, um, from his perspective. Anyway, let's see what he has to say.
1: Your sins, and this deals with two different kinds of sins, venial and mortal sins. Venial sins are the sins that you have to pay for, but you're still saved. But I've got to pay. i got to pay for what I did here and there. See,
0: he's already kind of missing the point, right? Um, you do have to pay, in a sense, and, and Jesus uses this exact this exact wording in Luke 12. I have a whole thing on this channel already about how Jesus himself teaches purgatory, and he speaks about um, you know being thrown into prison and having to pay to the last penny before you're out, and he does this in the context of an eschatological or end times um, sort of a, a parable, right? Uh, but it's also more about us growing in holiness and not being attached to sin, because, again, nothing unclean enters heaven, and in this life, We die attached to sin. We die imperfected, even though Jesus says, be perfect as the Father is perfect, right? But it's John, right, in his first epistle, John 5, where he gives us this wording. He says, not, you know, although we know the wages of sin is death, not all sin is deadly. Not all sin is mortal. And that just simply tells us, you know, there are some sins that are grave sins that kill the grace of God, the life of charity in our soul. And there's some that simply damage us. And we should cease
1: uh, both. (laughs) We should strive to cease both anyway. And I gotta pay for it not only just in this life but in the next life in, in purgatory in that location. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Mortal sins are sins which if you commit you actually lose grace and you lose your salvation at the moment you commit a mortal sin according to Catholicism
0: and then you go- It's because you've turned yourself away from God completely and if you step into eternity completely turned from God you step into eternity most
1: likely locked in that position. Go to the priest and you say, hey, you know, bless me father for I've sinned, it's been this long since my last confession, I've committed venial sins, this is them, this is what they were, this is how many a times, or I committed mortal sin, this is the mortal sin, here's how many times I did it, da da da. And then uh, penance involves this, you have to be contrite, you have to have contrition or humility or, you know, sort of like a sorrow over sin. You have to have confession to a priest, it's got to be to a priest. Confession to someone else doesn't count, uh, only the- Only priests can dispense the sacrament of confession and that's
0: because that's how Jesus lays it out in scripture. In John 20, uh, 21, he gives the Ministry of Reconciliation to the Apostles when he says whoever sins you forgive or forgiven whoever sins you retain are retained he's speaking specifically to his apostles and then later on in, uh, in James we actually hear about uh, confessing sins to one another but he's writing to the leaders of the church he's writing to the Episcopoi and the Presbyteroi, the bishops and the priests um, though we should always also confess our sins daily to God in prayer and to each other. If I harm you I should confess to you, I'm sorry, I harmed you, I did something I shouldn't do. But Jesus gives us the sacraments, again, as conduits of grace. They're given to us by a God who knows us and knows what we need, and that's why he gives them to us. Uh, In fact, sacrament of penance, reconciliation, confession, it's my favorite sacrament. Um, I mean, I'm married, uh, so I enjoy that sacrament quite a bit as well. (laughs) Um, But it is... uh, it's it's one that I try and frequent on almost a weekly or bi-weekly basis so you know once a once or twice a month at least um, if not three or four times a month I try to make a confession I live right next door to a um to a Benedictine Abbey. And so they have confession available every single day, uh, at various times during the day, which is a real blessing. Uh, Obviously, in a lot of places, unfortunately, uh, you know, confessions available usually like on a Saturday afternoon before the evening, the vigil mass or or whatever. Uh, And I do wish that it was available more widely uh, in the church and people would take more advantage of it. Um, I think it's one of the things we really
1: need. Anyway, let's keep listening to Mike. The church, according to Roman Catholicism, has the power to forgive. Only the church does. That's why you've got to go to the priest.
0: Only the church has the power to dispense the sacrament, because that's how Jesus set it up.
1: Now, Jesus is my high priest. I go directly to in Roman Catholicism. I, I have all these in-betweens. It's a, it's a religion full of mediators. People get in between you and Jesus. And so, you go to this guy, and you confess your sins, and here's the theology in Rome. I'm just going to summarize it for you. In Roman teaching, there's something called the treasury of merit. And I want you to imagine, if you can, a giant bank vault full of good works. And the good works are Jesus' good works, Mary's good works, and then thirdly, the works of this, the good works of the saints. Not of all Christians, just specifically the, like the canonized saints. They're good works. And that's like locked up and secured. And the only way to access this treasury of merit is through the keys that the Catholic Church has. The keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16. So I go to the priest and I say, here I've sinned, I've done this, I've done this. And he officially reaches up with the keys, opens, the, opens the, the vault, takes some of the good works out of Jesus, Mary and the saints, and he applies some of it to me to bring me back into a state of grace. And then he just tells me my part. My part is the confession and then the penance. Now the third, so contrition over sin, confession, and the third part is following the instructions of the priest. Following the instructions of the priest. Typically this involves praying like 10 Our Fathers or 10 Hail Marys. Um, praying the rosary is a work. It merits grace. Praying the rosary every day is going to try to help keep you out of purgatory.
0: Do you really think that prayer does
1: not help you respond to grace? Uh, Sometimes this requires a religious pilgrimage to a shrine of Christ or Mary or wearing painful clothing I have a feeling that the the things the priest requires in the United States are a lot easier than the things the priests require if you go to South America I think they're probably more it's actually the
0: case that what the priests require nowadays are very light, almost too light, I would say, sometimes. But it's because they're trying to lower the bar, in a sense. They're trying to make it easier for people to make confession, and make frequent confession. Um, Jesus gives the church the ministry. He doesn't say exactly how to do it, other than when he tells the apostles, whoever sins you retain are retained, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven, meaning they have to be aware of the same, of the, the sins, meaning there has to be an oral confession uh, that 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 takes place but the actual rubric of how confession happens has changed over the years. That's what we call the lowercase t tradition as opposed to the capital T's, right, the capital T tradition is that confession is a sacrament and that it exists. The lowercase t is this is how we do confession these days. In fact, it was a few hundred years later. uh, I think it was the six or seven hundreds, in fact, it was the Irish, supposedly, who made private confession a very, very frequent uh, or, or common thing before then. Uh, usually confession was received very, very rarely, once or twice a year, I think they would offer it. And it usually involved a public confession um, as opposed to a private confession. And then oftentimes the penances were very severe, like go out every night for a month in the middle of icy cold water in the middle of the night and, you know, say a full rosary, which is uh, 150 beads around. Um, the rosary being, um, you know, t- five sets of of ten decades or ten beads. Um, which are usually the Hail Mary's and the Our Fathers that he's talking about. Um, so yeah, you know, at the end of the day, the penance has come down. However, it's not the penance that forgives your sins. The words of absolution, when the priest uh, gives you absolution, uh, God the Father of mercies through the death and, death and resurrection of his son has purchased for us the rewards of eternal life and sin his only begotten son. Um, through the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace, and by his authority I absolve you of your sins. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. I'm not a priest, so I'm shooting blanks here. Um, but that is the, the words of, of confirmation or of um, confession, right? That's what the priest says. And the moment he says that your sins are forgiven, now you need to still go out and do the penance. If you don't, you're going to incur a new sin, right? Because you're being disobedient unless there's a real impediment or unless you legitimately forget, you know, again, God is not a God of looking for loopholes to damn you. He's a God of looking for any type of a a foothold uh, in order to save you, right? Anyway, let's continue on here. And here's a quick word on Treasury of Merits. This is, I believe, from Catechism 1476, paragraph 1476. We call these spiritual goods of the communion of the saints the church's treasury, which is, quote, not the sum total of the material goods which have accumulated during the course of the centuries. On the contrary, the treasury of the church is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which is Christ's merits, which Christ's merits have before God. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin in order to attain communion with the Father in Christ the Redeemer himself. The satisfaction and merits of his redemption exist and find there there. Efficacy. Uh, so the treasury of merits. Here's the next sentence. The treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of, amongst others, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, they are truly immense, unfathomable, uh, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all of the saints and all who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission of the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they attain their salvation and at the same time, cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity, ancestors, in the unity of the mystical body. And so what you have to understand uh, what the church is talking about here is the fact that we can affect the salvation of others through our faith and through our works. Uh, And you can actually see this, one of my favorite parables in all, or or one of my favorite stories in all of the gospels, it comes from Mark chapter 2, and you know the story, but maybe it hasn't fully occurred to you. And it's actually very apt for this particular discussion. Uh, it's the story of the there's a paralytic man uh, who's been paralyzed his whole life. And he has friends who know if they can take him to Jesus, um, he will be able to, uh, to heal their friend. And they get to the house where Jesus is teaching, but they can't get in because um, there's too many people gathered around the room. And there's just no room. So what do they do? They crawl up on the roof. They make a hole. They lower their friend down. And what Mark says, let me just pull that up. Hang on. All right. Mark chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above. And when they made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were sitting there uh, and they're questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak thus? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, pick up your mat or your pallet and walk. But that you may know that the son of man Has authority to forgive sins on earth he says to the paralytic i say to you rise take up your pallet and go home and he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out before them so that all were amazed and glorified god saying we've never seen anything like this i love this story for a whole bunch of different reasons jesus of course uses that that term for himself the son of man but it emphasizes the fact that he is a man. He is fully human. And the son of man uh, has authority to forgive sins. And in fact, again, at the end of his ministry, he's going to give that authority explicitly to his apostles. But I also love the fact that it says when he saw their faith, he sees the faith of the people bringing him, the paralytic, he then says to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. So the sons of the paralytic are forgiven because of the works and the faith of those who brought him to jesus this is something that's really hard to account for uh, under most protestant understandings of scripture but is in fact a very catholic thing it's the same reason why paul in, in 1 corinthians 7 uh, recommends a believing spouse stay with their unbelieving spouse because the unbelieving spouse and the children are made holy through the believing spouse in some real uh... in some real way right um, you can see this in in a couple other places as well in scripture but anyway the the point is the body of christ is one we are all the members of the body and so all that we do all the good that we do together all the prayer that we do together affects all of us that's one of the reasons why prayer to the saints uh... and even praying for each other is important right We know that God knows what we need before we ask. So it should be almost unnecessary that I should even need to ask God, let alone ask somebody else to pray on my behalf. But we do that. And we see that Paul does this. I mean, this is the biblical model, right? Why? Because it's good for us. Because it strengthens us in the body of Christ. And so too, Uh, the process of confession. Uh, Confession strengthens us in the body. Um, I'm told this is a possibly apocryphal story, but um, Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychoanalysis, and purportedly he had noticed that amongst the people he would see um for for psychotherapy he said that the catholics were the ones who were better adjusted he, he was atheist he didn't have a belief in god but he thought that the catholics were doing something that was making them um, less neurotic, for lack of a better term. And what he determined it was, was confession. And he said, there must be something to this process of coming in and talking to somebody and you know, airing your grievances, more or less. And in fact, the very process of psychoanalysis was, was, was modeled. On the practice of confession, right now that's not a proof uh, one way or the other for anything. It's just very, very interesting that he saw the the benefit that Catholics received in receiving the the sacrament. Of confession and he modeled modern psychoanalysis on that method right sitting down and talking to someone Now, obviously talking to your therapist is not at all the same thing as uh, confessing your sins to a priest who has been ordained by someone who's been ordained by someone who's been ordained by someone who's been ordained uh, by Christ and one of his apostles right Uh, so that's a very very different thing but it shows that, that Jesus the divine physician understands that we need certain things right we need to hear the words I you're forgiven right and we need to own our sin You know, We still struggle in this life with sin, and we need to own it. And the number one way to own it is to speak it aloud. And so literally, one of the sacraments of the church is to speak your sin aloud so that it has less and less power over you. And then, of course, you receive guidance on how to minimize this sin moving forward. And uh, it's a constant battle, right? The life of a Christian is a life of spiritual warfare. Anyway, back to Pastor Mike
1: more strict and asked for more just because we're more of an individualistic and lazy culture, (laughs) so they don't want to put too much on us, I guess. Um, But what's interesting is the priest, if if you've ever been to a confessional, then the priest has a purple stole that he wears. That, I don't know if you know this, that is meant to signify his authority, purple being the color of royalty.
0: No, (laughs) no, it's not. It's meant to signify the yoke of Christ. Uh, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And purple, uh, though it does have royal uh, notes to it, is actually a color that represents penance or penitentialness. That's why the entire liturgical color for both Advent and Lent is purple purple. Um, We are a very liturgical people, and those colors mean something, right? And it's, you know, purple definitely meant royalty in ages past, and it does in some ways, I'm sure. uh, I'm sure you can find symbolism where it points to the divine royalty uh, that is Jesus, the King of Kings, right? But it really has more to do with penance. So again, even in little things, he's making mistakes that just are, they they, they show that he doesn't understand what he is talking about, um, but he thinks he does.
1: And it has this purple stole to say, I, am, I have the authority to forgive your sins. See, going to a priest is not about, hey, pastor, will you pray for me? Hey, I need to talk to somebody. I've got some struggles going on. I need some fellowship. I need some, some advice and counsel. I do counseling all the time. But that's not what this is about. This is not about counseling, although I'm sure at times it turns into a counseling session. This is about getting your sins forgiven through the one and only source, the Catholic Church, where sins can be forgiven. So this
0: here's something else i want to point out about and this is something that i think is actually when you really understand it when you first encounter this is going to sound confusing you're like well is it necessary is it not necessary right god can work outside the sacraments and for someone who's never encountered the truth of the catholic faith um he can still obviously forgive their sins in a number of other ways whether he does or not is something that i don't I, I'm not going to presume upon. Uh, I was just reading uh, Paul's letter to Timothy today. It was actually one of the mass readings. Um, in fact, here it is. This is First uh, 1 Timothy 1, 12 to seventeen, and Paul says, "You know, I'm grateful to him who has strengthened me, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he considered me trustworthy in appointing me to the ministry. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and arrogant, but I have been mercifully treated because I acted out of ignorance in my unbelief." Um, because indeed the grace of our Lord has been abundant along with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. God is a God of radical love, and this is something that's actually missing uh, from the Protestant conception of God. It's usually God the divine lawgiver, uh, God the, the judge who's looking to, to condemn you, but is willing to incidentally be like, eh, I'll let you go. You're, you're innocent because this guy says he'll foot the bill, right? And that's such a an impoverished way of viewing the sacrifice and atonement of Christ. And it's usually followed with the idea that, well, once you've had righteousness imputed to you, you can never lose it again. And that clearly flies in the face of Scripture. I'm going to have a whole video about that coming up, about whether or not you can lose your salvation, because you certainly can. Uh, the Scriptures are replete with examples uh, that suggest you can lose your salvation um, and in fact, it is it is quite heretical to teach otherwise, and dangerous, right? It, it teaches other people, go ahead and sin. Uh, and you can find the reformers, in fact. Let me just pull something up. So Martin Luther says, Be a sinner and sin sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. No sin will separate us from the Lamb, even though we commit fornication and murder a thousand times a day. Think about that, really. Right. Think about what that what that says. Right. Um, and this is all based on this idea of uh, an alien righteousness, uh, an outside justification. So God arbitrarily justifies us, and it's it's a legal imputation. And so since it comes from outside of us, and we had nothing to do with it being imputed to us, uh, forensic forensic justification. Uh, therefore, nothing we do can. Ever cause it to be lost. And again, that just flies in the face of so many scriptural passages. Here's just one. This is St. Paul in Ephesians. Uh, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is a fornicator or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. or Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words and he's speaking because uh, now you are the light of the lord he's speaking to people who have been saved let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not become partakers with them you can become a partaker with them for at one time you were darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of the light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the lord take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them right why even admonish a christian at all Why not just say, "Hey, did you believe in Jesus? You're good to go." You know, go go tell the people to believe in Jesus, and that way they know the secret wisdom that gets them into heaven, right? The secret name of Jesus that all you got to do is you know know the know the handshake and know the password, and you get into heaven no matter how many murders you've committed, no matter how much adultery you've you've done, um, you know, no matter how many. I mean, again, here here's the the radical example. You know, you accept Jesus into your heart, and later on you become some sort of a Satanist, Nazi, you know, human sacrificing cannibal, right? <laughs> you know, no, you accepted Jesus once. You're good, man. You come on in. Come on. Even if you lead everybody else that you know in your life away from God and you convince them not to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, you're in because that one time you you had faith, right? So again, the, the this conception of um, our life in Christ, it mistakes the initial moment of faith that brings us in with the conclusion of the journey, right? We have to uh, we have to persist. In fact, almost every single time it talks about having faith uh, or believing, it is a, a present tense uh, active. So, you know, uh, famously John 3.16, For God so loved the word that whoever believes in his son might not perish but have eternal life. But the word believes there should actually be translated whoever is believing in his son. You can lose faith. You can turn away from God because
1: you are free. Back to Mike. This treasury of merit that only they have the keys to. So if your mortal sins have been committed, you get sort of, you get brought back, you get saved again when you when you do this confession. And if it's venial sins, then those get washed away. So, Venial sins actually are washed away completely uh, by reception of the Eucharist. That hopefully, like, let's say that you walk right out of, you know, the, uh, the confessional, and you've done the things the priest told you to do, and then bam, you get hit by an airplane or something, I don't know, whatever, right? <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you fall into, like, a lava pit or something, and you die right away. Hopefully, you're just going to go straight to heaven and skip purgatory. But then if you wait till later that day, you may have committed some venial sins, or possibly even a mortal sin, in which case you, you've, you've lost your salvation if it's a mortal sin. So,
0: You've quite likely lost your salvation.
1: Um, And and this is something I want to be careful.
0: Uh, There's a there's an early a couple of early heresies in the church. Origin is oftentimes labeled as having fallen into heresy. I think it is actually his followers that were heretical. And it's this idea of universal salvation. The idea at the end of times, everybody will wind up being saved. Right. The scriptures seem pretty clear that that's not going to be the case. However, scriptures are also very clear that, again, God is outside of time and space, and he can operate outside of it, independent of the the sacraments, which is why when Jesus is dying on the cross, he can speak to the thief on his right and say, today, you'll be with me uh, in paradiso," uh, which, of course, is probably again Abraham's bosom, but that denotes the fact that he's probably on his way to the good place, we'll just say. Um, so we know, and then of course, when Jesus dies, he goes down, he descends into Hades, into hell, uh, into the uh, Sheol, the, the bad part of Sheol, and he preaches the gospel to the spirit who are in prison there, right? So even they received the ability to accept the gospel so, we can trust that God is a God of justice and righteousness and mercy. And also, uh, with mortal sins in general, depending upon what they are, sometimes a sin that would otherwise be mortal isn't mortal due to things that affect your freedom and your understanding. Uh, here's an example pornography and masturbation. This is a mortal sin um, because anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already lusted in his heart, right? Uh, same with being angry, right? Um, however, the initial moment of temptation to either of those is not a sin um, temptation happens and with what we do with it is what what matters right but also if you've been habituated to the use of pornography there's a lot of studies especially nowadays that are coming out that show that pornography is addictive as heroin um, like literally the dopamine surge and the, the novelty especially with the, the the various tube sites that are out there um, you know this is a this is a big problem in the church this is a big problem in, in society in general and of course Uh, I lean libertarian lots of things and so it's really really hard for me like well people shouldn't make this but it's it's really showing itself to be a toxic cancer on society but the point being if through years of habituation maybe even through exposure as a kid you know uh, sexual molestation uh sexual abuse you know you can you can have different psychological issues psychological problems that may diminish uh, at the very least your culpability or the freedom you may be acting more under a compulsion and it's still something that you should fight with all your heart um make it public as much as you can right use uh Um, you know, the covenant eyes or custodio or one of those softwares that you know, is a is a filter on your device. If you have children, make sure you have those installed in your in your house, I need to get those on my devices in my house right now. Um, Because you want to protect them. But at the end of the day, um, we trust God as a just and merciful God. And there's so much more going into it than just being like, well, you committed a mortal sin after going to confession, right? Uh, there is so much more than that. That's just kind of a very simplified view. Uh, but the truth of it is, yeah, if you've turned away from God and then you step into eternity, you've turned away from God, stepped into eternity, and it doesn't look promising for you.
1: There's a problem with this. In fact, there's several that probably have already occurred to you. In fact, in fact, for Bible-believing Christians, just hearing the theology of the Catholic Church is enough to get you to go, yeah, that's just, wow,
0: that's weird. That's so It's only weird because you've never encountered it, and you've encountered a false doctrine that tells you that once you believe one time, you're saved forever, and nothing you do can affect that. And what should sound weird is the
1: words of someone like Martin Luther that we just read. Not what I read in the Bible. There is no Roman Catholic priesthood in the Bible. It just doesn't exist. You never...
0: Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it really, really does. There are bishops, there are priests, there are deacons. There are even religious uh, or, or, or marital restrictions placed on them. The, the, the bishop must be the husband of one wife. Uh, and there wasn't a problem with polygamy or polyamory in the early church. So when Paul says that the bishop must be the husband of one wife, he's putting a limit on the number of times a bishop can, can remarry. He can't remarry. Um, as opposed to other people where Paul very clearly says uh, that remarriage is possible for most people. Um, and in fact, you can see this uh, this notion of... Um you know, a, a vow of celibacy in the new in the, in the early church. Obviously, Jesus himself was celibate. He speaks very highly of celibacy. You know, he says, you know, if you can make yourself or accept being a eunuch for the kingdom, not necessarily actually snip-snip, but just living the life, a, a non-sexual life, that's a higher calling. Paul himself uh, says explicitly that he wishes everyone was as he is uh, living celibate, but he understands most people can't bear that. And Jesus says the same thing. But Paul also talks about, I, I think I've said this already, uh, in a previous video, he talks about an order of widows. And in this order of widows, um, he says don't enroll the younger widows lest they want to remarry and then they incur punishment for going back on their former pledge. Well, the former pledge isn't their first marriage uh, because he's very clear that they can remarry. So this pledge that they've taken in becoming uh, members of this this order of widows is a vow of celibacy. But if you're not aware of this being the case, you're just going to read over it and you're never going to notice it. And you've cut yourself off from over a thousand years, 15, over, over almost 2,000 years of lived understanding of the scriptures. Because 500 years ago, a, an Augustinian monk uh, who, a, a year before he left the church, said no one should ever leave the church. Left the church and started teaching things that are not found in Scripture, like sola fides, faith alone, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. You know, these are these are doctrines that are simply not even found in the Scriptures. But if you want to read a twisted version, uh, you can find verses that sound like they justify this, but you can find verses that that fly flatly in the face of this. So the only reason that what the Catholic Church teaches sounds weird to you is because you've grown up ignorant, uh, and I say that in the nicest sense, right? Literally, un familiar with the truth um now obviously someone like mike has definitely looked into it but i imagine he's only looked so far as to find sites that are critical of catholicism i doubt he's really sat down and listened uh to an honest defense of catholicism because all of the things he presents in this almost without a single uh failing nearly every single thing he presents in this is a misconstrual of what the church teaches not he's setting up straw men in in debate in logic um you should always set out to give the best argument for your opponent and then take that down, right? Um, it, it's called making a steel man, you know, making the, the strongest argument your opponent could possibly make and then showing why it's wrong. Whereas what most people tend to do when arguing against Catholicism is they make straw men, uh, straw men, the idea of a straw man is you set it up when you're training as a knight to, to, to joust, right? And it's just a it's a it's like a scarecrow, or whatever. And it's really easy to knock that off. It's really, really easy to joust against a straw man because he can't joust back as opposed to jousting against a real opponent. Uh, and so most of the arguments that Mike makes every single argument he's made so far has basically been a straw man argument. It's been a misconstrual, uh, something that the church doesn't teach, but that if the church taught, then yeah, it wouldn't make any sense. And he can argue, Against it, very very little of what he said here has actually been uh, even accurate, let alone a steelman version. I, I digress. ever see people the- actually. I don't digress. Uh, one more point on this. I was agnostic for years, and what brought me into the faith, and I've said this in a couple other videos, but I want to reiterate it here. What brought me into the faith was I didn't want to be Catholic. <laughs> it's too many rules, right? Um, but I wanted to know the truth and so you know I went from agnostic to being a deist from being a deist to seeing that there's something to this Jesus fellow I grew up hearing about um and I wanted to know more and so I saw the main split uh was Catholic versus Orthodox or sorry Catholic versus Protestant there weren't a lot of Orthodox around me I didn't even know really what the Orthodox were it took me a long time to understand you know their place in the, the history of of Christianity um which is a total side proof of why the orthodox is wrong the orthodox split was wrong because they're lacking that universality that the catholic church has you know they tend to just be nationalistic and you know belonging to an orthodox church usually means belonging to a certain nationality ukrainian or slavic romanian uh coptic assyrian etc and anyway what i found was that most protestants And most Catholics, when they would debate and and present the arguments in favor of themselves and against the others, Catholics would say, we believe in A and B. And Protestants believe in, they deny A and B, and they believe in 1 and 2. We'll keep these numbers and letters to make it it clear. And then the Protestants would say, well, you know, we actually believe 1 and 2 because of, you know, 3 and 4. And, you know, Catholics believe A and B, and that's wrong because A and B implies blurp and flirp and blurp and flirp are things that sound crazy like worshiping mary right um worshiping the pope um i i'm trying to think of all the crazy examples i've heard i mean there's just so many ridiculous examples that you can pull out and so i go back to the Catholics and be like all right well explain this whole worshiping mary thing explain this whole worshiping the pope thing like we we don't believe that i'm like well so-and-so said you did. And I'm like, well, they're mistaken. Literally, here it is explicitly in our church documents. We do not worship Mary. She is a creature. We honor her greatly. And again, I have a video on this channel all about that. Um, why we honor Mary and how understanding who Mary is helps us to understand Christianity. But then the Catholics would say, but here's the problem with one and two. Uh, the problem with one and two is three and four, where they would actually give a, a cogent response to what the the Protestants would say. And so what I kept finding over and over and over again while it's true that there is no one Protestant faith. And that's actually a real issue. That's a real issue. Like think about it, the truth will set you free Jesus, Jesus presumes the truth is knowable. But how do you know which denomination to belong to if Catholicism is wrong, there's somewhere between three hundred and thirty three thousand different denominations, depending upon whose numbers you want to look at. Uh, and even on the low end, if there's three hundred different denominations teaching three hundred different things, how do you choose? Right. How do you go through and, and, and make a decision? Well, this is the one I want to follow. Right. Uh, but meanwhile, what I found was in all Protestant denominations and uh, almost all of them, what they would wind up doing is straw manning the, the Catholic faith. Very few uh, if any, would ever actually give the steel man version of the Catholic argument. And so I just kept finding what felt like, whether it was or not felt like dishonesty. Um, it felt like, um, it felt like intentionally maligning, uh, people for things they don't believe. Um, be like, if I, if I, you know, talked to pastor Mike and said, well, why do you guys worship the Bible? Right? Uh, or, <laughs> why do you guys just to be you know completely ridiculous? Why do you guys, um, why do you worship the Easter Bunny? You know, he's like, we don't worship the Easter Bunny, you know, in fact, we have real issues with the idea of the Easter Bunny and here's X, Y, and Z and the reasons why, right? He would think that would be absolutely ridiculous. But a lot of the times the the arguments being made against the church are equally ridiculous, but people don't want to hear them. So they listen to somebody who had an ax to grind and raises uh, objections and they say, well, here's what the Catholics believe, but they don't actually go and listen to a Catholic explanation uh, of what these things are or are not as the case often is. And that's one of the things that led me to Catholicism is it seemed more intellectually honest, to be quite honest. book of Acts, going
1: to a priest and
0: confessing their sins. We are all priests. But we do see that. We see it in James and we see it in, in the early church uh, and we see it in, in John 20, right? Jesus, Jesus says to the apostles, he, he appears to the 11 and he breathes on them. He says, he says, as the father sent me, so I send you. How did the Father send Jesus? The ministry of reconciliation. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, which shows us the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Son, by the way, which is one of my issues with the Orthodox. But that's for another video because <laughs> that was their big denial in 1054 is the, the filioque, which is the uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son being added to the Nicene Creed. Um Clearly, the the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. But anyway, so Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. And he breathed on his remaining 11 apostles and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain are retained. He is giving them authority to forgive sins. It is explicit right there. And if you look in the first century, second century, third century of the church, you're going to find it equally explicit. In fact, here is one of the bishops of the early church. This is Irenaeus of Lyon, writing around 180 AD. So this is about maybe 150, 130 to 150 years uh, after Jesus. This is about 120 years after the time of the apostles. And he writes this. Such are the words and deeds by which in our own district of Rhone they have deluded many women, who have their consciences seared as with a hot iron. Some of them indeed make a public confession of their sins but others of them are ashamed to do this, and, in a tacit kind of way, despairing of attaining to the life of God, have some of them apostatized altogether, while others hesitate between the two courses and incur that which is implied in the proverb, neither without nor within, possessing this as the fruit from the seed of the children of knowledge. So he is literally speaking about some women having been deluded or deceived, I think this is probably one of the Manichaean style uh, heresies that he was railing against at this time. And they would have basic orgies or sex cults. And many of the women, when they realized what they did was wrong, they would make their public confession, but some wouldn't. And when they didn't do that, they would incur a different kind of punishment or they would just become completely apostate, right? So literally the process of them rejoining the church was confession. That's what he just said. That's what a bishop in the first century, second century church, uh, the persecuted church, the martyr church. That's what he said. In fact, actually, here's the longer version that comes right before that. Uh, Moreover, this Marcus compounded filters and love potions in order to insult the persons of some of these women, some of these women, if not all. Uh, those of them who have returned to the church of God a thing which frequently occurs having acknowledged confessing too that they had been defiled by him and that they were filled with a burning passion towards him a sad example of this occurred in the case of a certain Asiatic one of our deacons who had received him Marcus into his house his wife a woman of remarkable beauty fell victim both in mind and body to this magician and for a long time traveled about with him at last, when, with no small difficulty, the brethren had converted her, she spent her whole time in the exercise of public confession, weeping over and lamenting the defilement which she had received at this uh, magician. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, makes an implication about this as well in his letter to the, in the to, to the Smyrnians in 110, so this is about... 70 years before irenaeus uh, it is according with the reason that we should return to soberness of conduct and yet while we have the opportunity that is in this life exercise repentance towards god it is well to reverence both god and the bishop so he's talking about confession to one of the episcopoi, the ones that christ had ordained so we can clearly see uh in scripture and in the early traditions of the church this was there it gets much more explicit later on Um, uh, again Origen writes this in 248 AD still the persecuted church with about 75 years to go before Christianity is made unillegal he writes this um, this is from homilies on Leviticus in addition to these there is also a seventh sacrament albeit hard and laborious the remission of sins through penance uh, when he does not shrink from declaring his sins to the priest of the Lord uh, Cyprian of Carthage, in a letter to the clergy from 250 A.D. says, For although the smaller sins, sinners may do penance for a set time, and according to the rules of the discipline come to public confession, and by imposition of the hands of the bishop and clergy receive the rite of communion, meaning they can come and present themselves for the Eucharist. You shouldn't go receive the Eucharist, which is the real body and blood of Jesus, soul and divinity uh, in under the, the, the form of the, the bread and the wine. They've been changed substantially. Now, he says, with their time still unfulfilled, while persecution still rages, while the peace of the church itself is not yet restored, they are admitted to communion, and their name is presented. And while the penitence is not yet performed, confession is not yet made, the hands of the bishop and the clergy are not yet laid upon him, the Eucharist is given to them. Although it is written, whoever shall eat of the bread and drink of the cup unworthily shall be guilty for the body and the blood of the Lord. So literally what Cyprin is saying is there are people who are receiving people who haven't made confession and allowing them to receive the sacrament. And then he's threatening them with Paul's letter. First uh, Corinthians 10 where he talks about whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup unworthily is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord which shows you this belief in the real presence of the Eucharist because to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord is to be guilty of uh, it's murder right to be guilty of the body and blood of anybody is to be basically guilty for murder and so receiving the Eucharist unworthily is to be guilty of murder that's Paul's own words and here Cyprian uh, of Carthage 250 AD is making this point So again, this is the consistent witness of the early church. And uh, 1500 years later, uh, it took a severing with that tradition uh, in the form of the reformers uh, to lead people like Mike to deny the sacraments being existing at all, yet alone being efficacious when even the martyr church practiced them and wrote about them. Cardinal uh, John Henry Newman is about to be uh, declared a saint, I believe. He's about to be canonized. And uh, he famously said to be steeped in history or deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Go read the early church fathers. You, If you understand how the early church worked and operated, it's almost impossible to continue and persist in being being a Protestant. And I'm not saying that to be mean or to be rude. It's just the case, right? When you see that the things you believe are man-made traditions that didn't exist
1: beyond 500 years ago, it's really, really hard to keep holding on to them. All priests, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and verse 9, we're all priests, every one of us. There is one particular verse that I hear used by Catholic theologians to promote the idea of having to go to a priest to get forgiven. And it's James 5, 16. I'd like to read it to you. It says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now you can push the priesthood onto this, but it's like, it's like a square peg in a round hole. It's, this is not about the priesthood. Confessing my trespasses one to another. Just open up and talk to each other. Any of you confessing to any of you fulfills this. Not a priesthood.
0: Notice a couple things. Uh, first off, we are all called to be a... Uh, uh a priesthood, right? This is absolutely true. And with one high priest who is Christ, but that doesn't mean that there are not ordained ministers with certain authorities passed on to them, right? We see this in the scripture itself. That's why the words Episcopoi, Presbyteroi, and diaconoi are in the scriptures, because there were certain people that had certain authority. And to deny that is just to deny a blatant truth of scripture. And you'll notice he's appealing to this chapter in James, um, where he hasn't talked about Jesus breathing on the apostles and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain retained. If I recall, it's been a while since I watched this particular part. Um, I don't think he goes into it at all. But anyway, just point that out or just pay, pay attention. But also, this is the fulfillment, right? God says to Israel, you are a nation of kings and priests, Right. Not that everyone was actually a king or everyone was actually like a, a Levitical priest who served. But that was the whole point of setting Israel aside to make them a nation of kings and priests. They were the seed that later becomes the church. Um, and we are called, you know, to a priestly ministry. And a priest is one that, that offers sacrifice and intercedes for others. And we are called to, to offer sacrifice daily in our lives uh, for others and to intercede for others uh, and to bring them to the Lord through prayer. So, yeah, we all share in a priestly ministry, male and female, free and slave slave Jew and Gentile uh, we all share in a priestly ministry but there are some who are ordained and uh, that's important to bear in mind
1: pray for one another that you may be healed the effect of, prayer of a righteous man avails much it's talking about body ministry where we're all priests in the kingdom of God and we all have the ability to minister to each other pray for each other your prayers are as powerful as mine or as powerful as anybody else's when, when they thought oh we don't have enough faith Lord that's when he told them all he needs is mustard seed I like the old songs to-
0: he just he just read James says the prayer of the righteous man availeth much. It's from James uh, five. The prayer of the righteous avails much. The prayer of the righteous has much power. And he's like your prayer is just as 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 powerful as mine.
1: Literally, what he just read denies that. But anyway, says you don't have to have a lot. Just use what you got. <laughs> and it's you know Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Your prayers are powerful because the one you pray to is powerful. That's true. So. This, think about this, like if you were just studying the Bible and you're rebuilding Christian doctrine, you were stranded on an island and you you knew nothing of Christ except what the Bible taught, would you ever come up with the Roman Catholic priesthood?
0: No, but you would never come up with the necessity of the Bible either. Because one of the things the Bible doesn't tell you, and I have a whole video about this, about canonical sufficiency, the Bible never tells you that you need to have, uh, particularly the New Testament right? Uh, Jesus never says right anything. Uh, When he's ascending up into heaven, he doesn't yell down a list of books to look out for. Paul doesn't pen a table of contents. either. Peter or John or James or Mark or Luke or, or or Jude or anybody else, right? Um, but we have it. And many of those books never make a claim of being inspired, but you accept them as being inspired because you're accepting the authority of the tradition passed down to you by the church. And either that authority was infallible, in which case the church is who she says she is, or it's not infallible, in which case the New Testament at the very least, uh, and the Old Testament most likely, is at best good spiritual reading. Because it doesn't matter if you know that all scripture is inspired by God. If you can't subsequently answer the question, is this scripture you got nothing right you can know and I give this example if you can know that every genus uh, of this type of mushroom is deadly that doesn't tell you anything of use if you can't identify is this particular mushroom in that genus <laughs> is it safe to eat or is it not if you can't answer the question of if it belongs to that genus then you can't know you know in this case whether the mushroom is, is poisonous or not and in the same sense you can't know what books belong to in Scripture, that depends utterly on the church, and I'm amazed. I am amazed at how many mental gymnastics people can use to get around this. They come up with all sorts of different ideas about. Um, well, we can see that things were used. I was just listening to somebody earlier today, and like, well, you know, the the four Gospels were written in the first century, so they're very, very close to the time of Christ. So that tells us they're reliable. You know what wasn't written around the time of what it talks about? Genesis. Genesis is written purportedly by Moses. It's part of the books of Moses, and it seems to span thousands of years of history, potentially, uh, depending on how you want to reckon all the days and everything else, and whether or not there's a little bit of symbolism and allegory being used in there. Whether it's completely literal, I'm not going to get into that question right now. But bear in mind, Genesis, uh, Leviticus, or sorry, Exodus, is the beginning of the life of Moses, and you know it's written. the The five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, are written purportedly by Moses. They're called the books of Moses, and. They're written well after the fact. So that's not even a good criteria. And that's one of the better criteria that people offer is, was it written near the time? Because obviously, if the Holy Spirit wants to inspire somebody, the Holy Spirit can inspire anybody anytime, anywhere. You know, if the the Torah is inspired uh, and is the infallible, inerrant word of God, uh, then it doesn't matter that the first book was written many, many, many years before uh, it was written. Uh, or it was written many, many years after the, the events that, that took place in it. So anyway.
1: Do you read James 5.16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of a righteous man avails much. Obviously, this means we have to get purple stoles, you gotta get like a little box that you go into, and then you have to say what you've done to the priest, and if it's a venial sin, and you know that'll get dealt with as a mortal sin, you'll get saved again, and then you never would come up with this stuff. This is clearly extra biblical.
0: Except it's not, it's not, and I gave you some of the biblical passages. I can give you more and I can give you historical passages. But the Bible doesn't exist in a vacuum, and he wants to presume that it does.
1: According to the book of Hebrews, and I strongly encourage reading it if, if this is a challenging concept for you at all, Hebrews we go straight to God through Jesus that's in the story we go straight to God through Jesus do not let anyone get between you and God
0: i don't really have a problem with that but Jesus himself gives us the Apostles and the Apostles give us the Episcopoi and the Presbyteroi and Jesus gives them the sons of men the authority to forgive sins so you are simply taking what Jesus gave us and saying "Eh, I don't want that and that's what I find really frustrating about Protestantism and this is where I'm gonna keep getting on my soapbox This is already almost an hour long video I'm sorry about that um but seriously Jesus says stuff all the time you know this is my body this is my blood and I'm sure he's gonna talk about the Eucharist I think next um and pros like yeah he didn't mean that though right <laughs> you know we we see paul we see peter talk about losing salvation like oh they didn't mean that though like it's always about their private interpretation of scripture and and scripture itself peter has something very very particular to say about private interpretation no prophecy of scripture came about via private interpretation or private revelation and so it's not a matter of private interpretation right and it doesn't mean you can't read it and understand it on your own This certainly is actually a good thing to do but what is the opposite of private public so ultimately the the interpretation of scripture should be a public matter and that public matter comes from the church that jesus very visibly gives us all over the gospels and the new testament and the church that existed before uh the 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 new testament was written and that author the new testament and protected and compiled and ultimately gave us the canon of the
1: new testament because there is no one between you and god so anyone who tries to squeeze in there is an imposter now the third, <clears throat> the third uh, sacrament, the third way of getting grace. All right, we're going to stop there actually because
0: this is a 50-minute-long video and I'm running out of time. Um, I'm going to go into this here, obviously. We made it. This is the longest video we've done yet. I think we went almost eight minutes straight uh, through Mike's video, so we're now at 16 minutes and 21 seconds. Um, let me know your thoughts. You know, share them down below. Uh, give me comments. Give me uh, feedback. Let me know if you have any questions. Um, obviously, like, share, subscribe. That always helps uh, me keep doing what it is that I'm doing. And uh, that being the case, I'm going to go ahead and end this video here. But God bless you guys and I uh, wish you the best. And be on the lookout for part. Four of this coming uh, probably in the next week or so. God bless.